Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God and it contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you've joined us this morning and we're going to study the Bible for the next 30 minutes. And our goal is that at the end of that 30 minutes, we'll all know our Bible a little bit better. So that's what the program's about. The way we operate is we take viewers' questions. So if you've got a question about the Bible, maybe something you've always wondered about, or maybe we say something during the show that you think, I don't know if I understand that or not, I have another question, we'd like to try to answer it for you. There's a phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. You can use those anytime you want to get in touch with us. And uh, we'll put your question on the list and get to it as quickly as we can. And helping me answer questions is Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. I'm glad you're here. I'm Steve Tandy, and we're going to answer as many questions as we can today, but uh, our viewers always get the first one. So here's your question for the day. Uh, Samson in the Old Testament told a riddle, and in that riddle, where was the honey? Uh, nothing like a good riddle to start <laughs> off the program. So uh, we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program, see if you know a little bit of Bible. Uh, but to the more serious questions, a little deeper than riddles, we'll let Toby get us started yeah, here. I have a soul question here. Uh, person wants to know, when does the body receive its soul? And I've you know, the question obviously is uh, is uh, from somebody who's thought a little bit about this, and I appreciate you asking that. The you know understanding that we are more than just bodies; that we are souls. In fact, someone said you're not a a body with a soul; you're a soul with a body. And I always thought that made sense to me. But in terms of when that happens in cre in the creation process, the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot. Uh, we don't have a lot of detail. We know that all human beings are made in the image of God and that that separates us from uh, the rest of creation. That makes us unique and special and valuable in God's sight and uh, clearly of great worth. Uh, Jesus said, you are worth more than many sparrows. Uh, to remind us that though there are lots of creatures and animals and and parts of the beautiful parts of God's creation, the uh, the zenith of God's creation was you and I, because He made us in His image. And my understanding of being made in God's image is there's that eternal part of us, the soul, uh, the part that uh, outlasts the body the part that is uh, ongoing in its nature. But the Bible doesn't really clearly say when that happens and when we receive the soul. Obviously, it would make sense to have somewhere uh, in the in as you're being formed in the womb. And my thinking is it if uh, the spirit starts first and then the, the physical, so you probably exist before you exist in the womb. But the Bible just doesn't spell that out. Ezekiel 18.4 tells us that, Behold, all souls are mine. 
In other words, God originated uh, all of the human souls, and uh, they started in his mind, and that's a beautiful thought. Uh, Psalm chapter 139 conveys this thought rather well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So we know we all have a soul. Uh, when exactly that happens is a mystery. Uh, the Bible just doesn't tell us. Hope that helped you. All righty. Got a question about children born out of wedlock. What does the Bible say about children born out of wedlock? Well, actually, nothing. Uh, technically, I guess you could say that the Bible teaches that marriage is the place for sex and therefore for having children. Uh, so that's the preferred method of children being born. And anything other than that is not optimal. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say anything about children born out of wedlock. Now, I know we've got a few viewers out there that have heard the Bible does say something about that, and they're thinking, now, just a minute, in the Old Testament, uh, children born out of wedlock couldn't go into the tabernacle or the temple or something like that. Well, it's an unfortunate translation that's led to that belief and uh, shows us why we need to check a couple of different translations sometimes. Uh, let me read to you from uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. That's the Old Testament. This is rules for the Israelites about who can go to the temple and who can't. And verse 2 says, uh, now this is the NIV version I'm reading from, says, No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. So that translation says forbidden marriage. Now here's where the problem came from. The old King James Version <clears throat> translated that word differently. Uh, the Hebrew word is polluted, technically, uh, literally, a polluted something, something wrong with the relationship. And the King James translators translated that as bastard. And so if you read the King James, it says no bastard may enter the assembly. Uh, to the 10th generation, and people read that, and because of the current connotation of that word, uh, they think, okay, somebody born out of wedlock can't go to worship. <clears throat> no, forbidden marriage is much closer to it. Uh, the ESB says a foreign, uh, a forbidden union, someone born of a forbidden union, and then the very next verse talks about Ammonites and Moabites, uh, Edomites. So that's what it's talking about. The Israelites were not supposed to marry with the pagans around them. And if somebody did marry an Ammonite or an Edomite or a Moabite and had children, that children was from a forbidden union. And that child was not allowed to go to the assembly. So that's what the verse really means due to a poor translation in the King James. Some people think that's talking about children born out of wedlock, but it isn't. So, the Bible says nothing about them. Now, there did used to be a social stigma attached to children born out of wedlock. Well, that was unfair to the children. They had, they had nothing to do with it. Uh, they have enough problems without a social stigma. Uh, 
children born out of the optimal condition are going to have some more difficulties than children born in a intact uh, family with a father and a mother and all that and society proves that uh, doesn't mean it can't be done and you can't raise such a child and they turn out fine and all that but in general they're going to have a few more problems so uh, we don't need to attach a social stigma to them also okay Toby okay uh, next question is from a viewer why did people live so long in the Old Testament why did people live so long in the Old Testament well uh, as you read through your Bible, it's certainly true, and especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of genealogies and a lot of uh, marking of this person lived this many years and then had these children and they lived these many years, and it, it's very detailed. And one of the things that quickly becomes apparent is, wow, these people lived a long time, uh, way longer than than you know. <clears throat> In our day and age, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90 years is about the limit. We know some exceptional cases where people get up in the centurion mark, and, and that happens occasionally, but not often. We kind of know that's uh, about where the limit is. But you read through those Bible stories, especially in the Old Testament, you see them living several hundred years. And man, what, what happened? And my answer to that is uh, that's the way God made it. That's the way God created us in the beginning uh, was to be, I mean, obviously it was a perfect world. We have perfectly formed bodies. But also keep in mind that he wanted human beings to fill the earth and subdue it. And that takes time. It takes time to have children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And so I'm, um, I won't find a verse for this, but my, my thinking about it logically is that you know, to fill a planet with people, you need to give them plenty of time. And as you begin that, uh, they need uh, several centuries to do it. And having them around longer makes them able to fill the earth uh, more readily. When we look at stories like Noah, Noah lived to be 950 years old. Uh, Genesis 5:27 says that the longest, at least biblically that we have recorded, the human that lived the longest was Methuselah. Uh, who famously lived 969 years, just shy of of a thousand years. Um, I, you know, there's many theories on that. Why that was a perfect world? They probably had a uh, a perfect diet. They had the the perfect conditions. Their genetics were absolutely pure, as God made them, and um, that may have had something to do with it. Um, but I also think there was probably a purpose behind that as well. At nowadays, and as we've gone farther along, we seem, seem to live much shorter lives, and I think we're, I think that, that is numbered as well. The psalm that I just read for you in my previous question, Psalm 139, at the end of that it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before any of them happened. And so, <clears throat> I think God just set limits on us, and one of the reasons I think that is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, which is this is in the story of, of the flood, and he's kind of saying, my, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, whether that was referring to the time until the, the destruction of the flood, or whether that was speaking more broadly, that from that point forward we'd sort of be limited, but not too long after the flood, we watched those uh, life uh, ex 
uh, number of years drop off considerably in those genealogies. So I believe that limit was all set by God uh, in the beginning and even today. I hope that helps you a little bit. All righty. We'd like you to study the Bible with us at Know Your Bible by listening to a few answers each week, but also by uh, sitting down in your own home and spending a little time studying God's Word. Uh, we've got some ways to help you do that. We've got some tools that we're happy to share with you. Uh, this course you see on the screen, there's eight lessons in it, and we'll send it to you through the mail one lesson at a time. Great way to get familiar with your Bible and get a good overview. Uh, when you get that one done and graduate from that, we've got some more difficult core, well, not more difficult, they're just more extensive, I guess, uh, that teach you a lot more about the Bible. And a lot of people these days would rather do things online, so we've got some options for that now. Uh, just log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and they'll get your information and uh, get you started studying a Bible course online that's... Uh, very thorough, a great way to learn the Bible. Uh, so we've got all those options. All those will help you study the Bible at home and get to know your Bible a little better. So phone number and a website at the bottom of the screen. Uh, use those. Tell us what course you'd like, and we'll get them started for you. Question about baptism and what's the right way? Always a good question. What's the right way to be baptized? And this viewer gives us an option. Is it Acts 2.38 or is it Matthew 28.19? Well, if there's a perceived problem here, we better see what it is. So we'll just read those two verses and see what our viewer is talking about. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28.19 says to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, we see what our viewers spotted here. Uh, there's two different things there. Uh, one says to be baptized in the name of Jesus. One says to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, if those disagreed, if those were really two different ways to baptize, uh, then there'd be a problem. But the Bible says there's one baptism. Uh, so we know it can't be two baptisms. So let's, let's look at a verse that says that, by the way, Ephesians 4. Uh, says there's one body and there's one spirit. And you were called the one hope that belongs to you. And there's one Lord and there's one faith and there's one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All right, the Bible all agrees with itself. So we know two things now. We know there's one baptism. And we know that those two verses that we read say a little different uh, wording about uh, baptizing people in the name of. Well, uh, the difficulty is that that's not a formula for what you have to say at a baptism. In fact, it doesn't say you have to say anything. Uh, it just says baptize people. And then it says you do it by the authority of, in the name of. That's what that means. You do it by the authority of Jesus. You do it by the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all agree. They all say baptism's necessary. So when you baptize someone, you're baptizing them by the authority of Jesus or the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, whichever you want to say. 
uh, all you're doing, if you say those words, and I think it's a good idea to say something, you're just saying what you're doing. You're, you're just telling that person and any witnesses, uh, I'm baptizing you, uh, not because I've got any authority uh, to forgive sins or do anything else. I'm baptizing you by the authority of Jesus. He said to baptize you and that you'd have your sins forgiven. Uh, I'm baptizing you by the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all agree uh, that if you are repent and are baptized, you'll receive forgiveness of sins. So it's their authority. So that's all those two verses are talking about. <clears throat> now, some people make a big deal out of the wording. Uh, there are churches that have divided over that, denominations that uh, some are Jesus' name only and some are not. Uh, they've divided over how you say or what you say at a baptism, but uh, that's not what the verses mean. So uh, there's one baptism, one right way to do it, and it's done by the authority of everything divine. All right. Uh, the next one is a fast question, uh, literally a question about fasting. How can a person fast if medical <laughs> conditions require them to eat? Well, my answer to that is uh, they can't. Uh, if they if they have a, some sort of medical condition and they need to be eating all the time, and you know, fasting is just not an option, at least in the traditional way that we think about it. Uh, fasting is. If you, for those watching that don't know, fasting is taking a break, uh, choosing to not consume food for the body, um, for the purpose of just focusing yourself and using the the fleshly desire to to eat, uh, to focus on spiritual things. So some people fast, want to dedicate themselves to a time of prayer. They want to really focus on their relationship with God. And that's fine if you do that. Um, there's no scripture in the New Testament that requires fasting of Christians. Uh, but I believe as people grow and mature in their faith, they get to a point where they want to be more diligent in prayer and they try to do fasting as a way to focus themselves a little bit. Uh, it's a it's a self-discipline thing. It's a spiritual discipline thing. And it, it's for those who are probably, I would say, generally speaking, more mature in Christ. So if you choose to do it, that's fine. It's not required. Uh, Jesus did give some instructions very specific to fasting about why you do it and how you do it. You're not supposed to do it for your glory. You're not supposed to do it so everybody looks how spiritual you are. It's a private discipline that you do that's between you and God. So it's a, a fine thing to do if you choose to. Obviously, if medical conditions prohibit that. It's not going to allow you to. And maybe if you say, well, I'd really like to focus in on prayer. I'd like to uh, just really use that time to deepen my relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> Fast from something else besides food. You know, Choose to abstain from something that you normally would partake of and use that time when you would normally partake of that to focus on the Lord would be my suggestion. But uh, you won't find a verse in the Bible that requires it's not a legalistic thing. It's just a uh, maturity in Christ thing and for people who are wanting to grow. So here's the instructions from Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 and following. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I, I, tell, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you choose to do it, find a way where you can do it. The important thing is not that everybody else notices. The important thing is that God notices. So I hope that's helpful to you on your journey. All right. If you want to know about shunning, is shunning a Christmas a Christian practice? Uh, definitely not a Christmas practice, but it's a, I guess. Yeah, you're not invited to the Christmas dinner. Um, no, Christian practice, shunning. Uh, the term shunning is not in the Bible. The concept actually is in the Bible. Uh, so to answer the question, it depends what you mean by shunning. Uh, there are some religious groups that practice a very uh, disciplined form of shunning, I guess. I talked to some folks once who had been shunned. Uh, they grew up in this religious community. Everybody in the area was the same religion. Uh, and these people decided there were some problems with that and some teachings that weren't right. Uh, they began to study the Bible on their own. Uh, they decided that they just wanted to be New Testament Christians, so uh, they were baptized and began to call themselves just New Testament Christians uh, and basically forsook the teachings that they had been raised in, and they were shunned in the community. They still lived in the community, uh, but they couldn't shop at the grocery store. And they, One thing I remember, they still went to family weddings and things, uh, but they had a table for themselves that they had to sit at. They couldn't sit with the other people. Uh, so that kind of shunning has real structured rules and regulations and how they do it. Uh, that's not explained in detail in the Bible. The concept of not associating with someone who is an unrepentant sinner is in the Bible. Uh, we call it church discipline or we call it disfellowship sometimes. Uh, but the Bible does teach that if a Christian, a member of a church congregation, uh, sins and refuses to listen to reason and refuses to repent and maintains that sin and won't change their ways, then the solution is to not associate with them not eat with them, not fellowship with them. And the purpose, this is important, the purpose is to bring them to their senses, uh, to make them realize what they've lost, uh, the fellowship of fellow Christians, and repent and get their life straightened out. Now let's read that verse, well, one verse, 1 Corinthians 15:11. Paul says this, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Okay, now, that's the concept of what some people call shunning, is we're not going to associate with you. You can't, you're not in fellowship with us because of your sin. So shunning's technically not mentioned, but the way, the, the concept of it, yes, that's in the Bible. 
All right, let me take just a moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. And uh, This program is brought to you by the Churches of Christ and produced by the Northside Church of Christ in Wichita. So let me mention that one today. Uh, we mention different churches each week, and occasionally we mention the home church of Know Your Bible. Uh, up on North Meridian, north of Wichita, if you're passing through Wichita or you live in the city, uh, stop in and see us sometime. We're always happy to meet uh, some of our viewers and happy to have you with us. So uh, Northside Church of Christ, we've got a lot of great programs up there, and one is the Celebrate Recovery Program, uh, Thursday nights at Northside every Thursday night. Uh, great help for a lot of people. So if you're interested in something like that program, drop in at uh, the Northside building on Thursday evenings. All right, Toby, question about small churches. Yep, we have uh, a lot of folks who watch us, and maybe they're part of a small church. Is a small church with no elders or deacons still a scriptural church? My answer to that is yes. Uh, what makes a, a church a scriptural church uh, is, is are they a part of the body of Christ? Uh, as Steve mentioned in an earlier answer, Ephesians 4 says there's uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, there's one body of Christ. And so being in Christ makes you a part of the church. If you have a group of two or three who are in Christ, that's a church. If you have a group of two or three thousand, that's a church. Scripturally, what causes you to be a church is not the number of elders or deacons or even the if you have elders or deacons, it's whether or not those uh, in that group are in Christ. The church, the word church means ek, is ecclesia, which means the called out. This group of people that were called out of the world, called into Christ, uh, and who are in Christ Jesus uh, because of their faith and their uh, baptism into him. So that's, to me, what makes a scriptural church now, to your question about elders and deacons, when a church meets, one of the really important parts for any group is its leadership. Uh, whether you're small or large, leadership will make or break a group. So obviously we would encourage, as the Bible does uh, in First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, when you have those who meet the qualities of, of men for to be deacons and to be elders, uh, to appoint those as quickly as possible. But sometimes it's just not possible. You just don't have people who are qualified. You don't have hardly any people. Uh, I've known groups, churches, if you will, that were literally all all ladies, and uh, none of them could meet the qualifications. So it didn't work, but they're still a church. So... Um, if you can have leadership, you should, and certainly by, follow the Bible uh, qualities. But uh, no, you don't have to have a certain number or, or even any. If you can, you should, but not always possible. So hope that helps you. All right. We've got time for a time question. What's B.C. and A.D. really mean? Well, I put a little chart here on. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. means Anno Domini, that's Latin, for the year of the Lord. So that's the way we've always talked about it. Uh, when Jesus was born, before that day was before Christ. After that was the year of the Lord. So his first birthday was the first year of our Lord. Now, they're changing it, they're trying to change it to B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era and the Common Era. 
Now, you might want to know, well, why would anybody want to change that? Well, it gets Christ out of there. <laughs> we don't have to talk about Jesus. Uh, the funny thing is we still keep time from when <laughs> Jesus was born, whatever we call it. So uh, kind of silly, but that's what folks are starting to use now, BCE and CE. We're glad you've been with us today. We're out of time, but we're going to answer this trivia question. Samson's riddle, where was the honey? It was in a dead lion. We hope you come back next week for more of your questions. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.